All right, guys, how you doing? Um, this is uh, your host, um, Babylon Thought. Today, joining me is Dr. Bill Warner. He is the founder of the Center for the Study of Political Islam. Uh, Dr. Warner's background is actually in science, where he holds two degrees in physics and the other in math. And he uses this approach to analyze the original texts of Islamic thought. Dr. Warner, thank you for joining us today. It's a delight. We're going to talk about my favorite subject. <laughs> Excited. And uh, joining me today as well is uh, my good friend, uh, Jay Stephen Roberts. He is the founder of Real Crusades History, the best source on the web uh, for the history of the Crusades. Stephen, how are you doing today? Thanks for joining us. I'm doing great, Peter. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Warner, it's really great to have you on and finally get to talk to you. Good. Let's have fun. Absolutely. So, your, your organization um, is called the Center for the Study of Political Islam. Can you give us uh, a brief explanation of the difference between, say, Islam itself and political Islam? Well, let's, before we discuss political Islam, we need to discuss what is Islam. Now, most people that I've run into say, well, Islam is the religion of Muslims. And who's a Muslim? Well, it's someone who belongs to the Islamic religion. So if we'll notice, that's perfect definition of a circular definition. It doesn't go anywhere. So, but there is a, a uniform agreement as to what the nature of Islam is, and it's simple. It is the doctrine found in the Quran. Let's start with that. Now, if you read the Quran, which is not the place to start to study Islam if you're a serious student, but if you try to read the Quran, you'll discover there's something peculiar about it. And that thing that's peculiar about it is, is there's not enough in it to practice the five pillars of Islam. So, what are we going to do here if, if all of Islam is not found in the Quran? Well, there's a trap door that leads from the Quran to what we need to know. And that trap door are the 91 verses in the Quran which state that every Muslim is to imitate Muhammad if they want to go to paradise. And if they don't imitate Muhammad, they'll go to hell. So, we need to live our lives as Muhammad did. And how do we find out that life? Well, it's simple. We have this biography, which is the Sirah, S-I-R-A and the Hadith, H-A-D-I-T-H, and the Hadith are his traditions. So we know an enormous amount about Muhammad. As a matter of fact, we know more about Muhammad's personal life than we do George Washington's life. It was recorded in exquisite detail. So, Islam is the doctrine found in the Quran and the Sunnah of Muhammad. Now then, the thing peculiar about that doctrine, I've spent a lifetime studying religion and its effect on history. The thing that's peculiar about the doctrine is, if you read Buddhist literature, for instance, you'll discover that most of the sutras are about how to be a Buddhist. But Islam just devotes only about 49% of its material to how to be a Muslim. The other 51% is what to do about the Kafir. And it's always bad about the Kafir. So political Islam is the part of Islam that deals with the non-Muslim, the Kafir. Religious Islam is the part of Islam that you practice in order to hope to go to paradise or avoid hell. Right, so it deals primarily with the kafir as opposed to the theological um, aspects of the religion. I have no interest in theology at all. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Dr. Warner, how has our popular culture gotten the Crusades and the expansion of Islam wrong? Well, <laughs> let's start with the expansion of Islam, then let's move to the Crusades. The expansion of Islam, by most of the people that I know of, is Islam just happened. It was, you know, 
I talk with Christians who don't really understand that North Africa used to be Christian, that Egypt used to be Christian, that Turkey used to be Christian. So I find that the average person, Islam just happens. That, you know, it just somehow or another was always that way. So most people's idea of the expansion of Islam is they have no idea. But let's be fair here. The average person knows very little about Islam, period. And why should he? Because if you go, I'm, I'm highly trained, and in none of my education did anyone ever explain anything to me about Muslims, except they were mostly Arabs. So most people know nothing about Islam and how it expanded. As a matter of fact, part of what I've done in popular culture is to create a dynamic battle map which shows 1,200 years of, of Islamic military conquest. Now let's deal with the Crusades. The Crusades. And by the way, the average Christian knows little about the Crusades except what he's been taught in the media, which is they were bad. But the Crusades were a defensive event. The reason for this is, if we go back to the hypothesis, which was the Middle East used to be Christian, then how did it become Muslim? Simple, by conquest. So what the Crusades were a call to drive the Muslims out of the sacred sites of Christianity. In in particular, Jerusalem. And so the Crusades were all defensive war. They were not where I've, I've seen the theory advanced that somehow or another the young bucks who were the had dukes for fathers didn't have anything to do and they didn't have enough money, so they just went to the Middle East to kill and steal. It was a religious motivated war, but it was also a defensive war to take back what had once been Christianities. Yeah. Yeah, really good comments. So how did the early Islamic conquests impact the European Christian world? Let's start with the early conquest of Arabia because it, helped, it started the process of crushing the Christian. As a matter of fact, here's what happened. Muhammad preached the religion of Islam for 13 years in Mecca and converted about 150 Arabs to Islam. The Meccans found him to be an unpleasant man who was argumentative, divisive, and so they drove him out and he went to Medina where he became a politician and a jihadist. This is all laid out exquisitely clearly in the Sirah, the life of Muhammad. Now, at first, Muhammad attacked the uh, polytheists, the uh, Arabs of Mecca, because he had a personal grudge. Then after he crushed them, he moved to crushing the Jews. Let's give an example of that. When he moved to Medina, it was half Jewish and it had three Jewish tribes. Two years later, Medina was Judenrein, cleansed of Jews. But it, the attack on the Jews didn't stop there. He then moved to the Jews of Kaibar and crushed them. His last military expeditions were north into Syria to kill the Christians. All right. So his his final words were, "There shall be neither. There shall be no two religions in Arabia, and keep giving the money to the Kafir ambassadors." So Islam fights a war with the sword and also fights a war with information warfare. Keep giving the money to the Kafir ambassadors. So after Muhammad died, we come to Abu Bakr, who was the first caliph, and he tended to the business internal of Islam because many of the Muslims said when Muhammad died, they're like, you know, we tried the uh, Muslim thing, we kind of liked it, but Muhammad's dead, so we're out of here. And Abu Bakr says, not so fast. And so the Rita Wars, the apostasy wars started, and when Abu Bakr died, he had unified the Arabs into Islam. 
that left Umar to come to power as the second caliph, and then Islam's power, once unified in Arabia, exploded into the Middle East and conquered. It crushed first Damascus, which was the intellectual heartland of the uh, Christianity, and then it moved into Egypt, which used to be Coptic Christian, and it just kept expanding. The final crush, of course, was the fall of Constantinople in 1453, as I recall. So Christianity was crushed by military by two things, the invasion of Islam and then the imposition of the Demi or Sharia laws that ruled Christians. So the, the Sharia is put into place by a jihad invasion. That's the classical story of the fall of Christianity. All right. All right. Um, so, so what, what left, left from with Islam, such as the Crusades and the Reconquista, can we apply to our current conflict with Islam? Is there anything we can learn from uh, how the Christians dealt with it in the past, the Europeans dealt there with it? There is an enormous lesson to be learned here. The Jews lost to Medina because there were three tribes and Muhammad attacked them one at a time and they could not unify to defeat Muhammad. So he took them down one at a time. The only success that Christianity has ever had in pushing back is when it unified, as in Spain and as in the Balkans. Mm -hmm. But Christianity was wrought with division. And so generally what happens is, we see this in America, what Christians do is attack other Christians rather than attack mm -hmm. Muslims. This is in an ideological manner. So Christians need to understand that this is an existential threat, it's a threat of existence, but in Nashville, Tennessee, which is called the Buckle on the Bible Belt, the Muslim Brotherhood has stated in a public gathering that its strongest support in Nashville is from the pulpits of the churches. The strength of Islam in Nashville, Tennessee comes from the churches and the synagogues. So churches need to understand that they're under attack, ideological attack. They need to understand their history. The, history, the Christians that I know in Nashville, Tennessee, know an astoundingly little about Islam other than they've met a nice Muslim at work and they've been told that if you don't like Muslims, you'll be a hater, racist, bigot, Islamophobe. Well, Christians are in general decent people and they don't want to be called bad names. So as a result, they acquiesce to the popular pressure of just smiling and being nice. As a matter of fact, I, I condemn the churches for having reduced the Bible down to two words, be nice. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, I think we can all attest to um, a, a lot of the uh, the um, the events in the news um, concerning that organization. Um, can you briefly explain what the Muslim Brotherhood's plan for America is, and what it is we can do to prevent it, if at if anything? Well, now you've said an interesting thing there. There's sort of a defeatism, if anything. We can win. We have a better civilization. We need to understand that. And if we don't fight to win, we will lose. And repeat your question again, the first part of it, because I forgot it. Right. Uh, what is the Muslim Brotherhood? Oh, what is the Muslim Brotherhood? Let's take them one at a time. Mm -hmm. The Muslim Brotherhood is a response to the loss of the Muslim Empire under the Ottomans in Turkey. Right. Islam became weak, it was colonialized, and so the Muslim Brotherhood met in Egypt to create a new form of warfare. 
Previously, the warfare consisted primarily of kinetic war like jihad. They planned a new kind of war, a civilizational war. The Muslim Brotherhood is the most brilliant strategic thinking military operation in the world, and yet they're not even that they don't own a single gun, but they're part of a civilizational war. The killing that's being done, that needs to be done by the Muslim Brotherhood, is done by others, jihadist outfits. The Muslim Brotherhood are the men who have nice suits and nice shoes, and they show up at the door representing peaceful Islam. And they're just, they're so misunderstood. But the genius of the Muslim Brotherhood can be seen in the uh, foundational document called, uh, from the Holy Land Foundation, the Explanatory Memo. They lay forth their strategic plan. It's there to be seen. Hard, few have read it, but there it all is laid out. How they will compromise the churches, how they will build youth groups in the schools, every step that they need to take. How they'll do bridge building with the churches and the synagogues, how they will operate in the media. In Washington, D.C., it's impossible to go into any office and not find some Muslim Brotherhood representative who's always a very smiling, nice person. The Muslim Brotherhood practices civilizational war. Jihad can be practiced by sword, money, speech, and pen. The Muslim Brotherhood doesn't use the sword as much as it uses money and propaganda. They are brilliant at it. They have studied us. They know our weaknesses, uh, whereas we never study them because we want to be nice. But the Muslim Brotherhood is the most brilliant group devoted to a war that I have ever studied in history. They don't need to be militarily strong. They need to be, they have strategic long-ranging plans and they're always to compromise and infiltrate. I am a great admirer of the Muslim Brotherhood. They're brilliant. Now I despise their goals, but I never denigrate my enemies, which is a mistake that many people make. Never denigrate your enemies. If they're your enemy and strong enough to oppose you, you need to study their strengths and examine your weaknesses. But we're just caught up in the web of nice. That's a good point. And um, going back to a point you made about um, the dimnitude status that um, Islamists place upon the conquered. Um, and you also, it was interesting you said um, the Muslim Brotherhood uses uh, a bridge between the pulpit and the synagogues. Um, there's actually an organization I'm sure you're familiar with, um, which um, our favorite uh, uh, Demi scholar, John Esposito, founded the Bridge. Ah, yes. He carries water and chops wood for Muhammad. Right, yes. <laughs> so how do you respond to the claims made by people like him and his organization that there really isn't any plot to overthrow Western civilization? Well, I say, John, why don't we examine history? John, why don't we examine doctrine? Because the doctrine is exquisitely laid out. The Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith are unified on the need that all people have to submit to Islam. That's all, A-L-L. That's 100%. That's everybody. So there is no limit to the expansion of Islam, and historically, it's never recognized any limits. One of the interesting things about the Islamic Empire, by the way, is it does not collapse. When the British invaded India, they established a ruling thing of colonial power. But one day the Brits left and it was still Hindu. But once Islam is put into place, the Sharia guarantees that every aspect of that society will become Islamicized. How you use the toilet, how you cook food, how you make love, how you conduct yourself in public, how you knock on a door, how you say hello, what constitutes worship. All of these things are put into place. And so therefore, when Islam becomes corrupt, 
it does not fall because there's no native culture left. So I say to John Esposito, look at the history of jihad, look at the look at the doctrine which says it will not cease until every until every kafir agrees there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. So what I say to John Esposito is this, if I need to understand Islam, I won't ask John Esposito, I'll ask Muhammad and I'll ask Allah. There are only two experts. John Esposito is not one of them and Bill Warner is not one of them. They're Muhammad and Allah. So if I want to know what's going to happen, I study Muhammad, I study Allah. Right. But Dr. Warner, I, I'm sure you see now that that kind of talk is just Islamophobic as our friend Dr. Esposito would, would inform us. You know, I've never had anyone use the term Islamophobia to me direct in face because if they do, I have a question for it. What the hell does that word mean? <laughs> Phobia means I'm crazy, that I have an irrational fear, but let us examine what I'm afraid supposed to be phobic about, Islam. Islam says in the Quran that I can be assassinated. Muhammad frequently assassinated intellectuals who opposed him. So therefore, if I'm afraid of assassination, does that make me phobic? Because Islam has assassinated intellectuals who opposed it for 1400 years. Muhammad repeatedly, let me quote you a hadith. Who will kill Ashraf who has offended Allah and his prophet? I will, Muhammad, but I will first need to deceive him. May I do so? Yes, deceive him. And the assassin mm -hmm. killed Ashraf. Who was Ashraf? He was a Jew who wrote a poem about Muhammad. Now then, therefore, this is a historical record of Islam, and every Muslim is to imitate the actions of Muhammad. That's the Sunnah, 91 verses. So therefore, should I be afraid of a people who have a war policy of assassination of those who disagree with them? Or am I phobic, or have I understood the nature of the threat? Yeah, Dr. Warner, uh, I think you're, you're making some really good points here, um, especially about the issue of, you know, getting this history right. Um, I, as Peter was was mentioning earlier, Peter and I both work on this uh, pretty large online project we have called Real Crusades History. Good for you. And, yeah, and, and the point of that is is really to, to, to talk to the Western world, the Christian world, and say, let's set the record straight about our own history, you know, about the history of the Crusades. And the Crusades kind of, you know, being representative of that um, large conflict between um, our civilization and the Islamic world. And I think, you know, a couple of things come out of that. First of all, you know, we can look back at this history and there's a lot of heroism and things to be admired from the history of Western civilization and uh, Christendom that comes from this time period, as opposed to what we're, we're often told, which is that, um, you know, we need to have a negative view of that history. And then I think on top of that, what you're saying too, Dr. Warner, about understanding Islam for what it is. You know, um, there, there's kind of this, this tendency in, in the left to want to, to cherry coat Islam and maybe make it into this, uh, in, just, it's just one of many different religions. And, but what you're talking about, I think, you know, I've, I've studied Islam too, and it, it's, you have to take Islam on its own terms. Islam makes, exactly. certain, right. It makes certain propositions and, um, you know, it, it, it has, it has certain goals that that's separate from just like, you know, some individual Muslim that you might meet at work, like you're saying. So, so yeah, this is just a really fascinating uh, discussion to, uh, to me. And, and I'm really glad that we were able to have you on to, to talk about this stuff. So anyway, just, just wanted to give, give my, uh, my praise to what uh, Dr. Horner is saying here, but I didn't want to interrupt you, Peter, but no, 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 I, I appreciate that, Stephen. Um, 
Yeah, so uh, sort of following what you were saying, Stephen, actually, yeah, this that's actually a good segue into my next question was, um, Dr. Werner, you actually shared an, an article on Twitter about this, the fact that um, General H.R. McMaster and Sebastian Gorka, two people who I originally was happy to see um, were joining the Trump administration, H.R. Uh, McMaster as being a a accomplished military leader and Sebastian Gorka, somebody you know you see on Fox talking about the jihad threat, and I was really disappointed to hear that these guys were really reluctant to admit that we are at war with Islam itself. They, they they're sort of those two voices on the right that still want to um, mm. believe in this, really what I would call a myth that it's just oh well it's just radical Islam. It's not Islam itself. We don't want to alienate the majority of the base, and I I wanted to get your Thoughts on that and how you think it might affect uh, the Trump administration's policy towards Islam in the future. The shortest hadith is three words long. Muhammad said, war is deceit. Mm -hmm. I could be called a hawk. I'm a doctrinal purist. I could be called a fundamentalist and I'm a hawk. I also recognize the political nature of Washington, D.C. The political nature of Washington, D.C. is that after eight years of Bush, who was highly ex receptive to the Muslim Brotherhood, there's those famous pictures where he stood on the steps of the National Cathedral with the Muslim Brotherhood behind him and said, Islam is the religion of peace. Bush himself started purging the Pentagon of those who knew anything about Sharia because the Muslims complained about it. Then we had eight years of Obama, who chopped wood and carried water for Muhammad. He could one of my favorite questions in talks I used to give was, is Obama a Muslim? And my response was, it doesn't matter. He does the work for Muhammad. Right. So here we have Islam, uh, Islam has moved into Washington, D.C. at the very top. The universities and in D.C., it is loaded with two kinds of people who oppose what I'm doing. One are the left and the other is the Muslim Brotherhood. The left is very powerful. So I'm going to just ask a question. Could it be that under the current political process in Washington, D.C., we need to take a half step instead of a full step? Mm. I do not know. I've not talked to the parties involved, but I am loath to shoot at someone who's in my firing line. Mm. I don't know if you shoot at all, if you know what, you know what I mean? I, don't, I try not to participate in friendly fire. Right. Yeah, you're saying that... Um, the current administration as it's coming in, we might have some people on board who are going to be maybe taking a more sensible approach to the Islamic issue, but can't necessarily say everything that they think about it at this point or can't put everything on the line. Is that kind of what you're saying, Dr. Warner? Yes, it is. I think that, again, I spoke, the best thing about what I do are the people I meet. And people can kind of, I'm like, you don't have to worry about offending Bill. He's already offended everybody else. <laughs> so I get to listen to people who will tell me stories that don't get told. One of these is by a retired FBI agent who worked in, hello, counterterrorism. I learned a lot. One of the things I learned was, is that the top floor of the F at J. Edgar Hoover building is populated by FBI agents who are thoroughly picked to be Muslim Brotherhood friendly. Really. So the FBI doesn't even really carry out counterterrorism as it should. And by the way, here's an interesting sidebar. Inside of the FBI, when it came time to 
create the counterterrorism unit. They were told how many how many agents every uh, agent in charge was told how many out of his crew he was going to send to counterterrorism. Now, do you think they sent the best employees they had, or the ones they wanted to get out of the, the basement of their administrative pile anyway? So those people who went into counterterrorism were not the best in criminal investigation. And by the way, the criminal investigation part of this FBI works really well still, the crime busters. Mm. But the entire part of the counterterrorism that's headed up by FBI is headed up by people who were moved there primarily because they weren't the best that this agent in charge had anyway. So they have become fully compromised. It is difficult to carry on counterintelligence work when the counterintelligence work has already corrupted those who should be carrying it on. Right. Actually, we're in far worse. This is interesting. At the top, we're in worse position than we ever were. At the bottom, however, we're stronger than we've ever been. If you go to, to measure this, go to the comment section on any article on the web that's about Islam. After 9-11, the comment sections were populated by three classes of groups of people fairly equally. Muslims, apologists, and then those who knew something and didn't like it. Today, on the comment section, it is filled with factual comments about Islam. The Muslims don't even come on the comment sections anymore. And the left comes in to just do their Soros-fueled, oh, you're all racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe, whatever, blah, 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 insults. So yep, at the grassroots, at the grassroots, people such as myself uh, and, and many others, Spencer, have educated the, the grassroots. There's more knowledge about Islam at the common man's level than there is at the top. I wrote an essay one time called The Higher You Go, The Less They Know. And I did this after talking to a gunny sergeant back from Afghanistan who understood Islam and realized that I had talked with uh, lieutenant colonels who didn't know squat. Wow. So we make quite a bit of progress. Yeah, I've seen that too. I mean, there's been a really large kind of uh, concentrated movement by certain people in alternative media to talk about this stuff and to talk about the history in a more authentic way. And yeah, I think we, we have made a lot of progress in that respect. Let me, let me interrupt here. We've made progress in a way that is historic. Part of the Treaty of Umar, which was a demi treaty under uh, the Muslims in the Middle East, a Kafir was forbidden to read the Quran. Now think about that for a moment. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to know what was in the Quran, they had to go to a Muslim and be taught the Quran. Knowledge about Islam until 9-11 was always in the hands of an elite in the universities. Now I've been in a university for a long time and let me assure you that college professors are there and they want to appear real smart. They don't want to appear simple. So they wrote about an Islam that was comment upon they would comment about a book that was a third rank comment from 200 years ago this was dry work that no one read we have now created a new intellectual weapon against islam that has never existed in humanity which is the common man knowing quran sirah hadith this is a unique weapon for the first time islam's secrets are out in the open i was doing a debate with a muslim one time and he called me brother i says whoa stop right there I am not your brother. The Hadith says a Muslim is a brother to another Muslim, not to a Kafir. There are 12 verses in the Quran which state that a Muslim can be friendly with a Kafir, but he is never his true friend. I says, we are not friends. We are not brothers. I am a Kafir. You're a Muslim. 
He said, why would you want to call yourself that word? It's the worst word in the world. I said, yes, it is your word, and I'm a Kafir Hodges, a filthy Kafir, and that is how you will address me, sir. <laughs> now, this is a powerful thing to say in a debate because all of a sudden it was like I slapped him up the side of the face. The whole discussion took on a different tone. I just kicked him in the nuts on the first punch. <laughs> yeah, I think, too, you know, there's this, this problem with people assuming that you know, you can't um, both at once study Islam and, you know, to a certain extent, you know, Islam is a part of, uh, it's a part of history and there's, and, uh, you know, we can look at it as just as a historical topic, but we can also look at it just in terms of today and, you know, dealing with it, uh, I guess you might say strategically in the Western world. I mean, you know, I have spent a, a, a long time studying, uh, you know, medieval Islam. I, I've read all sorts of medieval Islamic authors. You know, I, I could say that, uh, you know, some of my favorite poetry is uh, some uh, poetry from uh, medieval Al-Andalus. But that doesn't mean I can't make a, um, a, a, I guess you'd say, a wise and uh, informed decision about how my civilization, which I love and want to preserve, you know, my heritage, uh, my culture, in the West, I want to preserve that and I can make a strategic judgment about Islam and its relationship with my civilization that is kind of totally separate from my ability to just kind of appreciate Islamic history. You see what I'm saying? Are you saying you're capable of, of objective, rational thought? Yeah, exactly. Right. Shame on you. Like, like yeah, you know I, that I, Islam I, is the only topic in the world that can, the only political system in the world that can only be understood by those who are inside of it. You see, I can't understand Islam. That's basically what they tell me. That's mm -hmm. what the left tells me. Oh, you can't understand Islam. Hello, it's Quran, Sirah, Hadith. The Sirah is a biography. Are you telling me, sir, that I cannot understand a biography? I want you, one time a man in a talk stood up and says, you know, you can't know about Islam. I says, sir, I challenge you to quote me the verse that I cannot interpret. I challenge you to give me the hadith, which I cannot understand. I challenge you to show me the fatwa I cannot comment on in an intelligent manner. And I challenge you to show me an episode in Muhammad's life and biography that I cannot understand. Tell me now. You said nothing. Yeah. What is he going to say? That I can't understand the biography of a man? Don't be ridiculous. And besides that, the Quran, I've made the Quran readable and understandable so that a high school student can understand it. I did the work that should have been done 1,400 years ago. And no, I didn't change a single word or a comma in the, in the Quran. Yeah, I'll never forget, you know, I was pretty young. I was still in high school the first time I read the Quran, and it was, it was not long after September 11th. And, you know, like a lot of American young people at that time, I didn't know anything about Islam. And and after that happened, uh, you know, after 9-11 happened, that's one of the first things I did is I went out and got myself a Quran and just read it. And I remember it was, it was a pretty boring experience. Yes. You know? <laughs> like, actually reading through the Quran, like from cover to cover, it's, it's pretty boring and it's confusing a lot of the time. And like you're talking about, Dr. Warner, you do have to go to the hadiths and the, and, uh, the, the sirahs to get a more complete picture of Islam. But, but reading the Quran in itself, I mean, that was... An incredibly enlightening experience for me just you know all those years ago that was kind of my first step on this journey toward you know understanding more about islam and its place in history can i explain to you why your quran that you read which is i have several on my shelf here is so hard to read and why my quran is readable mm -hmm. 
it's this the original Quran that what we the original Quran does not exist hmm. it was and about 15 years after Muhammad's death the uh, Caliph Umar commanded that Zayed a secretary pull together all the known copies of the Quran and produce a standard version he did two things that are peculiar number one when they finished producing what you now think of as the Quran he burned all the source documents now why would he burn all the source documents mm -hmm. well there's only one reason didn't they they didn't agree with each other he then took and arranged the Quran in order of the longest chapter in the front down to the shortest chapter you see the original Quran had a story built into it it was Muhammad's life so by changing this by putting the chapters in order of length instead of when they happened in Muhammad's life you removed the plot yeah okay once you take away the plot you've got a bunch of disjointed material what my Quran does is it takes the Quran and puts it in the right chronological order which is no secret Google it it's all known and then I integrated Muhammad's life into it for instance there's a verse in the Quran which says it was all right to burn the palm trees well if you're reading the Quran that you read you have no idea what that refers to Mm -hmm. When you read my Quran, Muhammad first attacks the Jews in their fortifications, is unable to kill them in their fortifications. They were date palm farmers, and so they cut the date palms. The Arabs said, Muhammad, you're a war criminal because you're just you're killing crops. Then comes the verse which says it was okay to burn the palm trees. Muhammad's life gives that verse context. The plot of the Quran is this: it starts off with a hymn to God and ends with political domination of the world. It is an epic story. What makes my Quran readable is that I have merely rearranged it and reconstructed the historical story as it was in the original. Yeah, that's interesting because, yeah, it's, it's true. When, when you just sit down and read, read the Quran as it is today, it is generally kind of a disjointed experience. You know, it, there's definitely not a plot to it. Um, there was a plot in the original. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. Yeah. You know, all, all this, uh, the comments made by both of you about sort of this self-taught um, initiative to understand Islam really kind of reminds me of um, the quote by Thucydides, um, which was essentially the society that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. And, uh, <laughs> I love that. Say that again. The society that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. That's from Thucydides' <laughs> History of the Peloponnesian War. That rocks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the great, the great Peloponnesian War, which um, uh, that that that's another book that um, you know, is, is probably pretty unfamiliar to to a lot of uh, of people. But yeah, it's 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 well worth reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Dr. Warner, um, you know, you've said in I think a few videos at least that. You don't believe that moderate Muslims are the answer to the reformation of Islam, or at least the, the just sort of the taming of the Islamic threat. And if that's if that's the case, then what do you think is the um, the ultimate remedy to this problem? Is it is it us studying Islam and sort of exposing its nature and sort of forcing a reformation upon it, or how would you go about um, approaching this this issue? Let's let's first start with the word reformation. There have already been several reformations of Islam. The Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Boko Haram, these are all reform movements. Wahhabism was a reform movement. 
Reform means to go back to your foundations. That's exactly what these people do. But that's not what Americans mean when they say reform. What they mean is a kinder, gentler Islam. Because they know this professional engineer work, and he's a really nice man, and he's a Muslim. So he's moderate. No, he's not applying all of Islam to his life is what he's doing. Mm. Moderation in Islam doesn't come from changing. Let me ask you a question. If you have a book that is perfect, complete, universal, and eternal, how do you reform that? You can't. You cannot. If the Sunnah of Muhammad is what every Muslim is to pattern their life after, he's dead. There's no way to reform, modify, alter, or improve upon the Sunnah. It is fixed, mm. eternal. How do you reform the Sunnah? You cannot. What we call reformation is denial. I just don't practice that. As a matter of fact, I've talked to Muslims who don't even really know what's in Islam. I think one of the most, when I was reading a book on the Sharia, they referred to a, a, a book, a verse in the Quran, which is Muslims are not supposed to ask difficult questions. As a scientist, let me tell you this. The only questions worth asking are the difficult questions. The other ones, the easy questions, they teach in a college course, and you can look up the answers in the back of the book. Yeah. So the answer to Islam is 100% of Islam. When I deal with Muslims, I do not try to say they're wrong. I try to educate them as to what Islam actually is. As I said to the man, your doctrine calls me a kafir. Well, he did not like that information being out in the room. So I am educating the audience. I do not debate with Muslims. I only try to educate the Muslims. And you always don't want to talk to the Muslim. You want to talk to the audience who is in front of you because they're all usually pleasant people who would like to do the right thing. They're decent people. They want to be nice. And so what we do is, is we tell them the facts, Quran, Sirah, Hadith, and Sharia. And then what are you going to say? It's not that. Yeah. And let me add one more thing. I always explain to the audience that the doctrine of Islam is dualistic. There are two Islams which are hardly related to each other. There is the Islam of Mecca, which is religious and consists of obeying the five pillars. Then there is the Islam of Medina, which is very political, devoted to the spread of Sharia, and a vast part of it, I think 24% of the Quran of Medina is written about jihad. So now then, Muhammad's life is simple. He was the preacher of the religion of peace for 13 years, and the practitioner of the politics and jihad and war for 10 years, which is the real Muhammad. Yes. They're both yeah. equally real. Oh, right, right. Um, I have, I have a question for Dr. Warner. Is that okay, Peter? Yeah, go ahead. Um, I think, you know, what, what you're saying, if, if we're going to take Islam seriously, we do need to uh, recognize it for what it is. Um, you know, this is, this is a very old religious tr uh, tradition and political system that it's, it, it has a, an enormous civilization attached to it with a lot of history. And, you know, the idea that we can kind of just change it with, uh, some sort of modern, PC initiatives is, is ridiculous. I think personally that, well, the, the long-term goal I see that we need to have in the West is uh, Islam shouldn't have a place in, in the Western world. I think that ultimately we should uh, get to a point where we can exclude Islam from Western Christian civilization. I don't know if you guys agree with that. Do, do you guys agree with that? Do you agree with that, Dr. Warner? 
I say we exclude it by knowing it, such that if you're a student, let's say you're a high school student in Tennessee, and let's say that miraculously you've gone to a church which educates you about Dawah and how Muslims try to convert you and has educated you about the real history and doctrine of Islam. So when you're approached by a Muslim in a conversation and he extols the virtues, that as a high school student, you can bounce back to him and say, let us talk about the true nature of Muhammad. Let us talk about the true nature of Islamic history. Because what we need is to not exclude it from a martial sense, but to exclude it from an intellectual sense, such that when a Muslim steps forth to uh, say something, that we can counter with the facts of Islam. I'm totally dedicated to educating every person in Quran, Sirah, Hadith, and understanding Sharia. The way I teach is not to contradict it, to tell you what it is. What I find is once people understand what it is, they're capable of excluding it from their own mind. Hmm. But to do this, yeah. we need people who have courage. And this is, look, we have two enemies in this fight. We've addressed only one of them. The first enemy is Islam. That's the far enemy. It is the near enemy that's dangerous. That is the apologist for Islam. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I, I certainly don't wish Muslims ill. And I think that, you know, they have an entire That's sphere. Yeah, they, they have an entire sphere of the world, you know, the Islamic world, what we, we call today, um, where they can they can realize their civilization and exist, I suppose. I just I guess what I'm saying is uh, at some point we do need to get to a point where there are not mosques in, you know, in Western Europe and the United States we don't have mosques in uh, the Western world. We don't have an organization like CARE, for example. Um, and I think that some Eastern European countries have, have taken some steps uh, that I think are, are very positive, you know, towards, uh, towards exactly what I'm talking about. Um, uh, you know, I can't remember uh, which one it is. Is it, um, what was it Estonia or Slovakia that recently, uh, uh, redefined religion within their their constitution to where uh, Islam can't really be recognized as as a religion that's you know sort of a protected religion like uh, any other religion that has uh, tax status within their country or something like that but I think that's that's really where where we need to head if uh, and you know as as we're discussing this there's obviously a long way toward going towards that um, and the process towards getting there is a process of education, of talking about this issue, of getting more people aware of, of uh, you know, what Islam's true nature is and what its relationship is with our civilization. Is Islam can't ever, you know, just settle for being one of a variety of religions within a Western country. Islam is always going to strive to hegemonic, yeah, to, to dominate, to um, to be the the governing order within a society. So. I'd like to comment on, on civilizations here. This is a civilizational war between two civilizations. One civilization, the West, has its ethical ideal, unitary ethics, which is the golden rule. between mm -hmm. all people as brothers and sisters. Then the other is the intellectual ideal of critical thought. Islam is based upon authoritative thought, and it's based upon dualistic ethics, how a person is treated, a Muslim is treated differently than a Kafir. So these are two different civilizations. What is the compromise between dualistic ethics and unitary ethics? There's no compromise. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you compromise between driving on the right-hand side of the road and the left-hand side of the road? Drive down the middle? I don't get it, dude. <laughs> 
So yeah. we need to understand that where there are two civilizations here, I want to make something very clear here. The civilization devoted to the golden rule and critical thought is a better civilization. I'm going to say what the reason I'm an Islamophobe. A civilization based on authoritative thought and dualistic ethics is inferior. We're better, they're worse. Yeah, um, and I think that, you know, a society that is so open and pluralistic as ours is, uh, it's, it's open to being exploited by a more, you know, uh, dualistic, I guess, as, you, as you're saying, Dr. Warner, militaristic uh, uh, religious tradition like Islam. I mean, I think, you know, Islam is so different from the religions that we in the West, you know, the various sects of Christianity that, we're, that we are used to dealing with that, that are a part of our heritage. It's so different from that that it's, it's difficult to get. Uh, it's not a religion. It's a complete civilization. <laughs> There's nothing in Islamic civilization that equals what, that is the same as what ours is. The single biggest lie about Islam is, is it's kind of like Christianity or kind of like Judaism. Those are religions. Let me give you an example of a difference here. Did you know there's nearly as many Buddhists in America as there are Muslims? I did not. What was the last, what was the last Buddhist parade march you saw? What was the last Buddhist who tried to come to the legislature and tell them how good uh, Buddha is? Mm -hmm. Buddhism is a religion. Islam is a political organization that includes a religion. That's the reason we have the Muslim Brotherhood. There is no such thing as the Buddhist Brotherhood because Buddhism isn't political. So I reject even comparing Christianity and Islam because one's a complete civilization and the other's a religion. Now there is a religion's aspect to Christianity, but it's not as part of its core doctrine. Our nation, the United States, was founded upon Christian principles but without a pope or a king who implemented Christianity. It was not a theocracy. So instead, it is built, we built a civilization based on the golden rule and based on critical thought. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, what really also makes it um, really difficult, I, I think no, more so, more, more difficult um, than just that, I, I think it even makes it sort of, impossible for, you know, moderate Muslims, even if they're well-intentioned to succeed, you know, when you have apologists on the left, such as the so Southern Poverty Law Center. Oh! Out, yes, your fa our favorite. Um, that, puts <laughs> out, that puts out lists like the top 15 anti-Muslim extremists. And I'm one of those. Me, yeah. me, me. Well, you and Sam Harris weren't included. I, I, was, I was wondering if you were offended by that, that you weren't included. I'm not on their latest list. No, you're not, actually. Robert Spencer is, Bridget Gabriel, David Horowitz, I think. Hey, Hi. wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's not right. I'm as good a hater as they are. <laughs> I agree. I'm with you there. I um, need to get my PR firm on this. <laughs> and, um, but, but yeah, they, they, among those people, they include someone like Ayan Hirsi Ali, who, granted, isn't a Muslim anymore, but she's, she has a, a you know, a definite connection to the Muslim world um, due to her background, and Majid Nawaz, who is uh, somebody who I, I think genuinely wants reform and is obviously still a Muslim. So I mean, just like the absurdity of this, I think just uh, kind of makes it impossible for any sort of reform to happen from within the world, from within the Muslim world, when the apologists on the left are are now demonizing people, <laughs> are, are actually demonizing the people who 
are real reformers and championing those like Linda Sarsour and CARE and all of these Islamist organizations who are bent on destroying Western civilization from within. I mean, it's just really, it's, it's just, it's, I don't know what to say. It's just insane. The world we live in right now where something like that. Our biggest enemy is not Islam. Our biggest enemy are those who would say critical thought is not possible. And we're going to call you names if you try it, by the way, Southern Poverty Law Center has never identified anything that I have said as false. They just say I'm an Islamophobe. And I used to be on those lists. I was on CARES list of inner circle of hate too. Mm. I need to get my people on this. I'm, <laughs> I need to be on those lists again. Yeah. <laughs> They're dissing me, man. Yeah, they, they, they got to show you some love. <laughs> um, but they never say I'm wrong. They just say, that's true. Let, me, let me point out something to you here. We used to be tougher in this nation. There was a saying that kids grew up with, which is sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Now then it is sticks and stones may break my bones, but dirty, bad names will just cause me a moral collapse and I won't even have an existence inside of society anymore and I may go to prison. <laughs> the biggest problem we have, <clears throat> you remember when you went back to, uh, you said that if we separate, how is it, you, we will have cowards for, for fighters and mm -hmm. fools for thinkers. Right. I'm afraid that's what we have, for instance, in the churches. I'm a very harsh critic of the churches. There's a job they're supposed to be doing, which is defending their civilization. Mm -hmm. Why is it? Here's one of my pet peeves. Why is it that the churches will work for federal dollars to bring in Muslims and will not say a word, a word about the torturous death of Christians in the Middle East and in Africa? Yeah, I condemn every pulpit that does not condemn that. Mm. Yeah, and these pulpits yep. are filled with nice people. Yeah, they're kind, they're gentle, they're sweet, they're understanding, they're compassionate, and they're cowards. They don't have moral leadership because they're cowards. Yeah, yeah. The society they've lived in has uh, allowed things for them to be probably too soft for a while. You know, at a certain point, um, there's just not that will to. To, to stand up for what belongs to you. And, you know, I, I think that's, that's so important in, in our era when we have all these forces that do want to enter into our, in, you know, this is our inheritance, you know, our country, the United States, the Western world, this is our inheritance. And I want to be able to pass it on to my children, you know, uh, strong and uh, with, uh, un, untainted by these forces that, that do, you know, that ultimately would would alter it for forever to where it was unrecognizable to us you know uh, well, the reason the left and the muslims get along is the muslims are very clear in their battle plan they want to put sharia in place of our constitution and they're not compatible we can discuss that later but mm -hmm. then we have the left who wants to destroy our civilization so the left and the muslims all agree our civilization has to fall now the left are utopian idealists who have no need for history but if they would study their history they would study that in Iran, it was the left who brought Khomeini to power, the Tudor party, mm. okay? Five days after Khomeini assumed power, he issued death warrants for every single Tudor party leader. So much for the left. Yeah, I mean, the, the response we usually hear from the left, and um, disappointingly from libertarians too, I actually made a video about this, why libertarians need to stop defending Islam and blaming US foreign policy, it's always, you know, you, you, you would hear Ron Paul say this a lot during um, his campaign, you know, oh, if we just if we just stopped meddling in the Middle East, then the Muslims would would stop attacking us. They would stop hating us. And I just when you look back at history, 
and you see the this ongoing conflict between Islam and the West, you just see that that's really not the case. Rand Paul in that statement says, I know nothing of history. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, so, so Dr. Warner, um, with this new administration we have, with, with Donald Trump in power, and you know, part of the thing that brought him to power, I think, was that he was willing to speak strongly on the issue of Islam. He even talked about banning Muslim immigration, and that, that didn't hurt his poll numbers at all. I remember when that happened. No. And that, if anything, that helped his poll numbers. <laughs> but, but, uh, so what do you think about um, Trump, and is, is that going to help our prospects in dealing with this issue? Well, I voted not for Trump, but I voted against Hillary. Now that meant I checked his box. Mm. Trump is so much better than Hillary would have been, but that does not mean he is our knight in shining armor. I'm not sure about how much Islamic doctrine he really understands, but he has a gut instinct that they don't like us. So I think he's operating more off his gut instinct. I think he finds himself in the swamp in Washington, D.C., in which it's one thing to say, I'll drain it, and it's another to be realized that the man who opens the door for you is part of that swamp, and that people are well. Do you know what the wealthiest city in America is? Washington, D.C. Yeah. What do they turn out? Tax consumption. Mm -hmm. So I think that Trump is far superior to Hillary, who took Muslim money. I mean, Bill Clinton took a million dollars from, I think it was Catter on his birthday. Now, I'm not implying here that money would influence Bill Clinton. I'm not implying here that $20 million from the Saudis wouldn't influence Hillary. Goodness gracious, we all know she's above being influenced by money. Not. <laughs> so I think that Trump is not our knight in shining armor, but he is so much better than the alternative that I just say, anytime I don't like what he does, I say, it's better than what Hillary would have done. Yeah. I think I do think Trump, uh, one thing he represents, or at least, you know, his rise is that, as you were saying earlier, Dr. Warner, the awareness, the understanding of Islam in the Western world has increased so dramatically. You know, back when after 9-11, when Bush got up and he made that speech where he said Islam is a religion of peace, he could kind of say that with a straight face back then. But now when people say Islam is a religion of peace, that's a punchline now. I mean, as a matter of fact, the only, I'm amazed. I was, I was at a religious gathering and who should utter those words, but a rabbi. Islam is a religion of peace. Mm -hmm. Did uh, people start chuckling? I just wanted to slap him. <laughs> Maybe shake him. Yeah. I, I just you want to imagine him. I won't go any further. <laughs> But did people around you kind of start chuckling at all when he said that? Because that's usually what happens now when people say say those words. I mean, it's it's a joke. This was at, this was at the Jewish, the JCC, the Jewish Community Center. Mm. And there were a lot of people there whose key thing in life is to be nice and not be truthful. So there was I was the only one who winced in the audience. That <laughs> and a few of my buddies. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, I think I remember reading about uh, a... Um, a spat you had, Dr. Warner, with um, another rabbi on your website who was uh, pretty much just accusing you. He didn't really have any arguments about um, why you were wrong. He pretty much just said, oh, well, you know what, Mr. Warner, you are, you're just promoting hate literature. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to... I promote the Quran. I promote the Sirah. I promote the Hadith. I promote Sharia. That's hate literature, sir? 
So you're doing some pretty good PR for the Islamic religion, it sounds like, Dr. Warner. Hey, me and the imam were out there trying to get people to know who Muhammad was. Only yeah. thing is, he only introduces them to half of Muhammad, and I introduce them to all of Muhammad. Right. <laughs> See, so far as I'm concerned, the imam's a half-stepper. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just, you know, like you're saying, Dr. Warner, personally, I don't really, I don't hate Islam. I don't hate Muslims. I think that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, I simply, I feel like at this point, I understand it very well. I know what it is. And I recognize that uh, Islam poses a threat to to my civilization. And therefore, I, I don't, I want to exclude it. You know, I don't want it to be placed in a situation where it can uh, cause harm to uh to the country I live in, to the civilization I live in and that I cherish. It shouldn't have the power to influence our political process. The Muslim Brotherhood should not be able to supplant our constitution. You know, I think what we need to do is we need to do anything that will educate the near enemy. The near enemy are ninety five percent of the churches, ninety five percent of the synagogues, ninety five percent of the universities, and I'm being generous here. The fight is in the textbooks, for instance. The textbooks now in Tennessee in the seventh grade, you learn in Tennessee that Islam, a golden age, was the high point of human civilization, that it was Islam that gave women their rights. It's Islam that protects Muslims and Jews. I mean, it protects Christians and Jews. That is, the Muslim Brotherhood is already inside the wire here in the education, in the schools. We need yeah. to be fighting uh, this at school boards. And by the way, one of the biggest disappointments Actually, the whole cast of characters who's supposed to support our civilization is very disappointing in this and weak. Churches, schools. I couldn't get a talk at any university. Really? Well, mm. I'm a hater. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And debate, an debate about ideology is no longer part of the school system. It, our universities have become ideologue factories. They're no longer critical thought factories. Right. Thankfully, they can't contain the alternative media, though. Yeah. You know, the Internet, in the earliest days, in the first year after 9-11, my wife and I used to debate. She's an Internet researcher on Islam. Used to debate, did the Internet help us more or did it help the Muslims more? It helps us much more than the Muslims. As a matter of fact, if it were not for the Internet, I wouldn't even exist because no one would have published my books on my own. And yet yeah. one of my books, which no one would have published, is the bestseller in the world on Islamic law. But I couldn't have gotten a straight publisher to publish that. Right. So do you think um, the best way of spreading um, the truth about Islam to the masses is really through the alternative media, is really through the internet? Um, you know, especially, you know, as someone who was a who is a college student, actually, I, I actually just went through a course on religions and I was listening to my professor, you know, when he discussed Islam, he pretty much, you know, echoed all of those, all of those lies that you mentioned about Islam, that Islam was what gave women their rights. Uh, Muhammad was a peaceful man. And I'm just sitting there like, you know, should I, should I speak up or should I be concerned about, you know, passing this class? So, you know, as opposed to that, maybe I should, um, we as a civilization should be exposing the truth about Islam through um, the alternative media instead of, since, since we don't have the opportunity to use the avenues of the church and the university to really, um, to advance this idea. Ultimately, I think, I was part of the civil rights movement in the 60s, which is part of the double irony when they call me a racist. I mean, 
I did voter registration demonstrations, created a civil rights organization called DARE, Direct Action for Racial Equality. We held a high moral ground and we were willing to proclaim that in groups in public. The day must come when the streets become filled with people like you and me, demanding that the full truth of Islam be sold and condemning the church and condemning the universities. It takes political action on the street, not with a stone, but with a pen and with a voice. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Education and information are, are really important. And the, next step, the next step in our fight is not more individuals such as myself. We need to find some way to connect those who know have knowledge mm -hmm. so that we can work together. So probably by to be a political force, you have to be a part of a working group as it is now. Our movement is not really a movement because it's filled with highly involved in a highly intellectual people but we're not part of a working group the muslim brotherhood muslims naturally think of groups the ummah kafirs naturally think of rugged individualism so we sort of need um an organized movement to counter the muslim brotherhoods but it needs to, yes i do but we have not fully worked out those details yet i'm just saying that as a theoretician 76 year old man studying this all this is all that I do I'm saying we have achieved the level of having good intellectual armaments that is we have a book collection that right. anyone can pick up and read me Spencer Boston I mean the list goes on at Trichovic the list goes on and on we have the weapons we must now create an intellectual brigade which can use those weapons and to do so effectively against the near enemy not the far enemy forget the Muslims right that deal with the priest the rabbi, the editor at the newspaper, the college professor, we need, to, we need to start raising some stink, but we need to create a group to make that stink. Individuals will not defeat an army. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, so, you know, I, I, we really need to get the information out there, um, which we have, but I mean, uh, arm those who don't have it with that information and then get out get out on the streets and start challenging the orthodoxy of the apologists who um deny that truth and uh start making as much noise as possible until those in the middle um you know raise their eyebrows and, and you know might say you know these guys might have a point i want to hear what they have to say this could be like an organization that has local chapters maybe and that uh, gets involved at schools and churches and uh maybe does some political lobbying is that kind of what you're suggesting dr warner i don't see how we win a political campaign based upon just individuals who are smart yeah good point yeah good point right all right so we're just about uh at a time here today um but uh before we wrap up i just wanted to uh know dr warner if do you have any uh what is your advice um yes no we kind of covered this already uh, anyway no so i'll say um do you have any closing comments? Um, Can I plug my website with a couple of sentences? <laughs> Absolutely. Go to my website, politicalislam.com. If you're interested, I have on that, I don't just sell books. I also sell educational systems. And so if you're interested in knowing more, I'd advocate that. Uh, and that's about all. Excellent. Steven, what about you? Uh, well, I'm J. Stephen Roberts, and you can find me at realcrusadeshistory.com. 
And uh, we've uh, got a YouTube channel where we do weekly videos on the history of the Crusades. All right, awesome. Well, um, Dr. Warner, thank you so much for joining us. This has really been a pleasure. Um, great conversation. Um, we'd love to have you back on in the future sometime. You know, you're busy, but if you could spare the time, we'd always be incredibly grateful. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Warner. All right. All right. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to stop the broadcast right now. <laughs>